We've been in the book of Joshua. Today is the last of that uh, last sermon in that series. We called the series Crossing Jordan. Last week, what we saw was the reason why um, the reason why the conquest was necessary. We saw that land was not the final destination, wasn't the end game. The land was required as part of the redemption of God. That when God told Abraham that the Messiah would come and he would be a blessing to all nations, he brings the children of Israel into this land and God, in a way, tells the borders in which the Messiah would be born. And the uh, covenant that he gives to David, the Davidic, Davidic covenant, speaks about the greater son of David who will rule forever and over all the earth. And so today we call Israel the holy land, but there comes a time when the whole earth itself will be holy because the glory of the Lord covered the sea as the waters cover, this, uh, cover the sea. The glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And we read in Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of the Lord and of his Christ, and he will rule forever and ever. But we also saw the nation of Israel. They were given all these promises. God had fulfilled all the promises. God, it is said that none of his promises fell to the ground, and yet they were not obedient completely. They did not trust God completely, and they missed out on the blessing. We saw that in chapter 23, how that panned out. But today I want to draw your attention to chapter 24, and the key verse for today is Joshua chapter 24, verse 15, which says... <clears throat> And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers served in the regions beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and, the house, and my house, we will serve the Lord. What we want to do is uh, want to ask us three questions. What does that mean to serve God? Second, why is it a challenge to serve God? And third, what did Joshua do to serve God or to help others serve God? So three questions that we, we want to uh, ask. But let me just pray, and then we will start. Father, we pray that you would speak to us, Lord. Make our hearts attentive. Keep us from distraction. May your word find its place in our heart, and it will grow to be a, a, a plant that grow, bears much fruit. We pray, O oh God. That, uh, that we would be ones who are willing to do your word. We thank you again. Thank you again for your word. Thank you for all the heads that are bowed. In Jesus Christ, a Lord's name. Amen. Amen. All right, so for the first question, what does it mean to serve God? What does it mean to serve God? The word serve appears about 12 times in these verses that we looked. You see, from, from verse 14, now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity. Put away the gods of your fathers, and they serve beyond. And then if you keep counting 10 times, or 12 times, sorry, in these 10 verses, we hear the word, we read the word serve. And so you've got to ask yourself, what, what, what does that mean? What does that word serve mean? 
the Hebrew word will give us four specific meanings. One is that of a farmer. So when you serve, there's toil, there's labor, there's sweat. I mean, it's not easy stuff. It's not just sitting at the computer. Uh, those of you in IT will say, no, that's hard labor. But uh, this is everything combined, you know? I mean, this is hard work. So that's a farmer working in the farm or in his field. The second is that of bonded labor, that you are like a slave working under a bond, uh, under a master, as a bond slave. So there is oppression, there is you know, force. Uh, but the third is that of a priest serving in the temple. But I believe the fourth meaning is what Joshua is trying to say. It's about worship. That Joshua is saying, I'd like you to serve God to worship him fully and exclusively. Every time, again and again, he says, serve, serve, serve. He's saying, I want you to recognize that God alone must be fully served and exclusively served. No one else, okay? And so Joshua then presents four choices. In verse two, he gives a choice of the uh, fathers long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, and he goes on to say, Terah, the father of Abraham, served other gods. So the gods who were on the other side of Euphrates, would you serve those gods? In verse 14, it says, would you serve the god of the Egyptians that your father served in Egypt? Or in verse 15, it says, would you serve the god of Amorites in the land where you dwell? Would you serve those gods? Or would you serve the Lord God of Israel? Was, the answer seems obvious, isn't it? Like, we want to serve the Lord God of Israel. We want to serve the Lord God who made the heaven and the earth. But Joshua says, no, that's not going to be easy. You, 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 can't, you can't just make this choice and say, yeah, I want to serve, but it's not going to be easy. It is not going to be easy to serve the Lord God. And so he wants to remind the people of Israel that if you make this choice to serve him, it needs commitment. Uh, last week we saw about obedience, total obedience. And today I want to give you total commitment. Let's hashtag it, right? Let hashtag total commitment. Something that we can remember. This total commitment to say that this is God only exclusively and fully, totally, that we will serve. But the question we have to ask ourselves is, why is it a challenge? Why is it a challenge to serve God? Because he says, sorry, he says, choose you this day whom you will serve. And the idea there is that you will serve somebody. You are designed to serve. You are designed to worship. You will, you will serve. You might either serve yourself, you worship yourself, or you worship someone else. We, we are held in awe of things. But you have to choose. Not if you will serve, but whom you will serve. And, and so then he asked this question. But the the question that we therefore ask is, why is it a challenge to serve God? Why is it so difficult? Why is it that the nation of Israel, we've asked this question again and again, nation of Israel have seen the wonder work of the Lord, and yet again they murmur, they fall away, they, they worship other gods. Like, wh what does that happen? Why is it that when you get to Judges chapter 2, verse 10, we read that there rose another generation that knew not God? How did that happen? Now I want to suggest to you that there are two 
reasons at least. One is that there is a disagreement between our character and his. There's a disagreement between our character and his. He's a holy God, we are not. His holiness demands total abstinence. It says no, no sin, no sin, total abstinence to sin. But we tend to love our sin. We, he's, a, he's a jealous God. We are tolerant. We, he, he says, I want to protect you. I, I, I don't want to share you with anyone. But we, we're okay. We, we, we want to give a little allegiance here and a little allegiance there. And God is saying, no, I'm a holy and a jealous God. And so therefore, I want total abstinence from sin. And I want your total allegiance to myself. That's all. That's what it takes to serve me. Total abstinence and total allegiance. Because sin makes God an enemy. In verse 20, it says there, there that, that if, you, if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done you good. A holy God, a jealous God, if you commit if you say you want to do that and, and, and don't follow through, it's going to be more dangerous for you. And, and so in verse 23, he says, put away strange gods. He says, then put away foreign gods in this ESV, it says. In some of your translations, it says strange gods. You know why it's strange? Because they come in every shape and every form. They come in ways that you don't understand. They come in ways that you don't think it's God. Uh, that you're serving, but those are gods you are serving when you don't have this total allegiance or you have not had total abstinence. I, I was thinking of an example as to how I can express this clearly uh, when our friends in India uh, well, is the one that came to my mind because they carry their gods in their wallet they carry their gods in between books, and he'll drop the, 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 you know, the images of their gods will fall out from you know, wherever. And it seems like it's hidden away. And sometimes our, the gods that we have created for ourselves, gods to whom we give allegiance, get tucked away in the nooks and corners of our life. And God is saying that it's difficult for you to serve me, impossible for you to serve me because I'm a holy God and a jealous God. And, um, and so you need to be careful when you make that commitment. But not just that. You see, we discount God's expectation of us. But what do I mean by that? It is that we are satisfied with partial obedience and partial commitment. We have limits on how much we are going to serve God. We're going to say that we have a price to which I'm going to serve God. We have a comfort level to which I'm going to serve God. I'm going to serve God when, it, you know, when it's convenient for me, when everything's okay. But when it gets tough and difficult, then I'm, you know, I'm going to step back and find my ways. I'm going to find these strange gods. I think that God should be understanding of my situation. And so I discount God's expectation of me. I don't know if you know this, uh, this uh, principle called the Pareto Principle. 
you know, in the, in the business world, they have what's called the Pareto principle, which is called the 80-20 principle. So if you have, if you have uh, 100 items, the 80-20 principle says that 20% of your items will bring the 80% of your revenue. And the 80% of the items brings in only 20% of your revenue. And so to be successful in business, what you do is you focus on that 20 items so that you can get your 80% of your revenue. And we treat sin like that because we think that if I take care of this 20% of these major sins, 20% of sins which you know everybody despises, the whole world knows about and knows it's to be sin, as 1 Corinthians says, even that is held and disdained by the Gentiles, we should be okay. And that these little foxes, the little sin that creep in, and we are, God should understand that because I'm taking care of the major sin. John Piper had a great article, and he said this. He said, if you want to really test your faith and how much you believe, and you know, uh, what you have to do is compare yourself to what the devil believes. Do you believe, do you believe that God is one, or the devil believes that? Do you believe that Jesus raised from, was raised from the dead? The devil believes that. Do you say Jesus is Lord? We look at 1 Corinthians 12, 3, which says you can only say Jesus is Lord in the Holy Spirit. But yet we see the devil and the demons acknowledge Jesus as God, as the, uh, the Holy One of God. Why have you come before? Will you torment us before a time? They say they acknowledge they're, they're, they're um, uh, uh, fearful of him. It says the demons believe and they, they tremble. And, and so what does that mean? It means this, that, you see, when I acknowledge him as Lord, I acknowledge him willfully as my God. I acknowledge him as the one that he alone is, because here you have the demons who, who know the fact of, of, the, of the fact that this is God, but they don't love God. They, they don't pray, hallowed be thy name, thy will be done on earth as it's in heaven. They don't ask for that. They believe God. They believe that, that Jesus is the son of God. But the difference is this. Do we believe this as a fact or do we believe this as because we have fallen in love with this God who, who ransomed our souls? What is the difference? And so that we we create ourselves no exceptions. Our allegiance is total. But we discount nothing when it comes to God. We have in First Thessalonians chapter 5, 22, it says, abstain from all appearance of evil. And so when Joshua calls people to serve the Lord, there is also this expectation that, no, it is not easy to serve the Lord, not to make, you know, easy believism. That's not possible. And so what Joshua does is he lays, he does certain things. There are seven things I want us to walk through in this chapter, seven things that he does so that this continuity of serving God continues on through his life and for those to come. And so the question we wanted to answer then is what did Joshua do? What did Joshua do? So uh, first, 
turn to verse verse two or verse one. Sorry, verse one. They met at Shechem. They met at Shechem. Read that in verse one. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned all the elders and the heads and the judges and the officers to Israel. And they presented themselves before God. And they presented themselves before God. Now I want you to understand what's happening here. They're corporately meeting at Shechem. Now, Shechem is an important place. Shechem is the place where God gave the promise to Abraham many centuries ago that this land is going to be your land and to your descendants. That was Shechem. It was in Shechem in Genesis chapter 35, we read that Jacob had come and he told his family members to put away strange gods and he hides those strange gods at the oak just at this very place in Shechem. It was at Shechem that when the nation of Israel first came into the promised land that they gathered here between the two mountains, the Gerasim on one side and Mount Ebel on one side, where from Mount Gerasim they would cry out the blessings of the Lord. From Mount Ebel, they would cry out the cursings of the Lord. And it was at Shechem that they had made a covenant before God. And it would be approximately 25 years because chapter 23, verse 1 says, a long time after, and if you add up the uh, age uh, of, of you know, Joshua, etc., you would think that that's about 25. So it's like the 25th wedding anniversary renewal, wild renewal. That's what's happening here. And he gathers them at Shechem. Because as they come there, they, they recognize the potential of what have they, they've been reminded about. And they gather unto the Lord. Gathering unto the Lord, corporately. I want us to get that. That's what's happening here. All right? But also, I want us to look at the second one. He prophesies in the name of the Lord, verses 2 to 13. If you read that, that word I appears 19 times. 19 times the word I, I did this, I drew, I called Abraham out, I gave Isaac and Jacob, I did this. You see, Joshua is speaking in the first person pronoun. He's speaking in the, as an I. And what Joshua is doing is that he's prophesying in the name of the Lord. He wants people to know that it's not Joshua, it was not Moses who did all that, it was God and God alone, that, he, that people would know that it was God. He was the one who did this. A memory is a good thing. One of the things that we, we do every Sunday is to remember the Lord. Memory is a good thing. We tend to, to easily forget. And so Joshua reminds people of God and what he did. But then you also have verse 3. Uh, the third thing in verse 15, sorry, he gives an example and Joshua makes this public announcement. He says, as for me, I'm going to serve the Lord in my household. And, and he challenges them. And he says, what about, he, though he doesn't ask that, the question is, is there. He says, what about you? What are you going to do? I, I, I don't want to serve those gods that, are, that we've left behind. But God alone, I want to serve God alone. He gives himself as an example. But then the fourth one is where we touched on. He says, there's no carefree commitment. You're not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He's a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgression uh, or your sins. He wants us to understand that there is 
consequence to easy believism. He, see, Joshua understood the biggest danger in not following God is when we are comfortable. You moved into a land, everything's okay, there's food, there is, you know, it's a, it's a plenteous place, there is milk uh, flowing, and there is, uh, there is honey and, uh, on the fields. The idea is that, that there is cattle that provides you milk and that there is, there is vegetation because of which the honey, the bees are coming, and it's a rich land. And because you're comfortable, you got everything that you need, you might start, start to slack off that being in the promised land is more dangerous to your spiritual life than it was when you were in the wilderness, when you had want, or during the times of conquest, when you knew it was God alone. It's times of comfort. And Joshua is wanting to say, listen, you got to make a commitment. you got to say no to sin, abstinence to sin, and you have to give your total allegiance to God abstinence and allegiance, total commitment. Then he leads them on to a covenant before God in verse 25 and says, so Joshua made a covenant with the people that day. What really, if you read through the chapter, you will see that this is the format of a covenant that was all that was done in during those times when a sovereign king or the the ruling king or the king that defeated a vassal would come and, and make a covenant with them and would go through the preamble. It, it talks about, you know, introduces this sovereign one and says he is the sovereign one, gives you a historical prelude as to what has happened and, and gives you the stipulations and, and goes through the agreement that they would have. And they would be witnesses and then there would be consequences. And that is what we read in chapter 24, this covenant, the important covenant that you make before God has consequences if you break them. That's what a covenant is. In our times, the covenant is that of a marriage, isn't it? When we stand before God, we covenant before God to love a spouse in riches and poverty and health and sickness and, and it goes. It's a covenant before God. We are saying that if I break that covenant, may God do to me as per the curse that happens when a covenant is broken. It's a covenant. God demands nothing else, nothing less but a total commitment. And so Joshua brings them to, to renew the covenant, as it were, which they had taken previously when they first came in. The covenant. And then he writes out the statutes and rules. We read that in verse 25. It says, and put in place statutes and rules for them to follow you see, what set apart the Jewish nation, the historians will tell you that. When they read the laws in Leviticus, they look at that and says, wow, this is profound. The width and the depth of the law is like, well, how is that even possible? How did they have a, a, a nation who were slaves for so long? They seem to have such rich laws. They reject the fact that it was given by God himself, that there's divine intervention in the law. They forget that. And therefore, they're not able to understand this beauty of the law. 
law was given to protect them, not to make their life difficult. And, and we see how Israel has the civic law, the religious law, the moral law, all laid out so beautifully. And in fact, it was expected for the kings that they would, uh, the kings would write out this law, read it and meditate because the law was important. The word was important. Joshua is saying, we have the word of God. I want you to be, I want you to be aware of this one thing, that this word is what is, will keep you from sin. The psalmist says that in Psalm 119, he says, thy word have I hid in my heart that I may not sin against you. We have God's word with us. And this word is about God's expectation, provision, providence, that he will keep us uniquely. And so Joshua reminds them of the statutes and rules at Shechem. But Joshua also does another thing. He raises a memorial stone. And in fact, what has happened, if you uh, look at the screen there, you will see that it'll be the seventh memorial that Joshua has, has raised since they moved into the land, seven times. And these memorials serve a purpose. Memorials are important because they remind you. And it's kind of scattered around the country and it serves two purposes one it's a teaching moment remember the time in Joshua 4 we touched upon it when they crossed the river Jordan they took these 12 stones and put them in Gilgal and he said in times come when your children are going to ask you what mean these stones you can tell them that our God parted Jordan he stopped Jordan and we came across it's an opportunity to speak about God these memorials, therefore, are intergenerational. It doesn't stop with today and gone tomorrow. They reminded, re remind our generations to come. In fact, it is said that when uh, John the Baptist was, was telling the Pharisees who thought that because they were sons of Abraham, that the promise must naturally come to them, that God had painted himself into a corner, and that uh, they were the obvious recipients of the covenant, covenantal blessing. John the Baptist says, Do you know God can raise out of these stones sons of Abraham? It is believed that he may have been pointing to the same stones. We don't know about that, but the point of the matter is when memorials are raised, they become good reminders. He lets them know. And so what he does towards the end of his life is he wants to ensure there is continuity of service. And what does service mean? What do, I, what do we say serving is? Worship. And how do we worship? Totally and fully and exclusively with total commitment. So what happens? You see, after that, in verse 29, it says, in verse 29 there, it says that Joshua remained uh, faithful to the end. In verse 29, it says, and after these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died being 110 years. 
This is the first time Joshua has been called the servant of the Lord. Moses has been called the servant of the Lord. And now Joshua has been called the servant of the Lord. And, and God rewards Joshua with that, the servant of the Lord. When you compare Joshua and Moses, you think of Moses as a, as a much bigger figure, a giant. He's done so much. And you don't think much about Joshua. I think, all right, he was another one who was not fully able to wear the shoes of Moses. But you see, this is the truth about God. It's not about how much you've done, but if you have done faithfully what God has called you to do. It's not the size of the work, but the faithfulness of your work. And so, as someone said, there is no room for rivalry in the kingdom of God. It is about if they have fulfilled the appointed task. And God says, Joshua, the servant of the Lord. I know that all of us here who know the Lord want to hear from God, well done, good and faithful servant. Faithfulness. Joshua. He leads them. As we come towards the end, he reminds them again and says that this Lord is worthy of your worship. So how do we conclude? What, do we, what does that mean to us? And that's important. So in, uh, towards the latter half of the chapter from verses 29, we see that there are three burials. Verses 29, Joshua, verses 32, Joseph, and verses 33 is Eliezer. Joshua dies at a ripe old age of 110. It's supposed to be uh, 110 in Egypt too was acknowledged as the as the blessed year if you live that long. We see Joseph dies 110. Joshua now dies at 110, and then you have Joseph, who we read in Hebrews that confidently in faith he said, "I won't take my bones with you when you leave and bury me in the promised land." And for 40 years they were lugging his bones around in the wilderness. They bring finally to the inherited land, the inheritance. And Eliezer is buried here. Three burials. You see, burial is an honor. I want you to understand this. Burial can only be, they could only do burial in their own land. Therefore, Abraham had to buy land. Jacob had to buy land to bury. And here God is saying, I'm the faithful one, Joseph who believed in me, Joshua who believed in me. I will bury them in this land of inheritance that I promised I'll give them. And he ends with a burial. But I also want us to think about Joshua as a good archetype of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the word Greek root for Joshua is Jesus. So Jesus in the New Testament in Greek is the same word in Hebrew for Joshua. And we see that this Jesus was the servant of the Lord, the perfect servant of the Lord, who did the will of the Father completely. And that's our desire. When we say we want to be like the Lord Jesus Christ, our deal is to say that will be done on earth in our hearts first, in my life first. That you would be hallowed in my life. That I'm not satisfied with a kind of belief that, that everybody believes. The whole world, the demons themselves believe that you are God. There's no big deal about that. 
they will all bow down to you, to you, to, to you. We know they will bow your knees to you. And as we were reminded in the, in the morning, that depends on when and where. That on a daily basis, I will bow my knee to the servant of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. But I also want us to recognize that this Jesus Christ is beyond compare. That even though he is a good archetype of Joshua, Jesus Christ is much more than that because Jesus Christ is the one who is the author and the finisher of our faith. It's said of Joshua that he did not, he was not able to conquer the entire land. But it was Jesus who fulfilled it all. It was Jesus who leads us to a better country. We read that in Hebrews chapter 11. He leads us to this better country. And Joshua, who could not provide that rest in the promised land, there was constant fighting. Jesus leads us to the rest. And in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, we read that those who are weary and are heavy laden come to me, I will give you rest, as rest that only God can give, as rest that, that like the rest of the world might promise but never be able to keep. Here, Jesus gives that kind of rest. And Joshua, who lived to a ripe old age, who died of honor and could not continue to serve his nation, we have the Lord Jesus Christ, who was cut off early in life, who was crucified in shame, but rose from the dead and will lead his people to inheritance and to rest found in God. That's my God. That's the one I want to talk to you about, Jesus Christ, the glorious one, my Joshua. And I want to say to you that this Jesus is worth your total commitment and worthy of your worship fully and exclusively. When I think about what Joshua tried to do with the nation of Israel and the, and the, and the command that we have, if you were to commit to follow Jesus Christ, He's saying he's a jealous God. He's a holy God. Nothing less will be enough. That it must mean total abstinence and a total allegiance. That I say no to sin, no to sin, that not even a spot would be found in me, that I'd be found spotless and blemishless, be holy before God through the strength that he gives me. That I'll say that I'll serve no other God that only God, the Lord God of heaven and of earth is worthy of our worship, our total allegiance. And we wait for a time when he will take us to be with him in the land, uh, a land that we sing about and we, we pray about and that will be with him forever. Only he can do it. I'm not sure if there's anyone who even has, has no idea what I'm talking about, who has no idea as to what Jesus has done. I want to say to you, my dear brother, my friend, my sister, that this, this, this Jesus Christ, that the story that we read about Joshua, if you just read it as a narrative, then you're going to miss the bigger picture of redemption. If you think about the land of Israel as just 
that they could come into this land and they could have a nation for themselves, then you big, miss the bigger picture of redemption. The bigger picture of redemption is about Jesus Christ. All the stories in the Bible is about Jesus Christ. He's a central figure. He is the one who demands that you give your complete allegiance to him, having totally abstained of every sin through the strength that he gives you. Apart from him, you're not able to do it. So trust him, know him to be the shepherd of your soul. Know him to be the leader who brings you to this land that he's promised. He is worthy of your worship forever and forever. I wanna leave you with a question in the light of what we have heard in Jesus Christ at Joshua. What steps must we take to stay totally committed to him? That this life, even though with our best desires and intent, unless we put parameters in place and are stay committed, we will fail. Now I wanna leave the challenge with you look through those seven things and say which of those ones would be things that you would want to do. May God be glorified. Father, we thank you. We thank you for Jesus Christ who is our Joshua. We thank you that he alone can keep the promise. He alone is beyond compare. And all the stories that we read about the various leaders and about the various events, Lord, all build up to this, this, this person called Jesus Christ who is beyond par and beyond compare. And we pray that you would draw our attention to him, that this morning, this afternoon, Lord, that we will commit to say that he alone is our God, that he alone is the one that we will pray. As Joshua said, me and my household, we will serve the Lord. We will serve the Lord. And we pray that cry will come out from every heart, Lord, this afternoon, and that you be glorified in the midst of your people. And that through the strength and the presence that you of your spirit in us, Lord, that we know that we will be victorious. We thank you again. We love you in Jesus Christ, our Lord's name. Amen.